I come from a family where we would, you know, our vacations were national parks, state parks. I just thought it was normal to know how to identify trees and grasses, plants. Like that was just part of my life. So I think for me, it's just really knowing the Texas landscape and it's complicated. Austin sits on a end of the the beginning of the hill country. And then we also have some plains that are actually, you know, soil you would actually want to farm in. And um, and it's a tough climate. Uh, It can get really cold here. It can get really hot here. We can get tons of rain. We can get no rain. So I think it's, to me, it's understanding the Texas climate, the Texas landscape. Obviously, people are moving here in droves and Austin's becoming more sophisticated. And on some ways that's wonderful. Our food is so much better. Shopping is so much better, but I would hate for Austin to become a cookie cutter in the way it looks. Like I think our landscape should look like Austin and should look like the hill country and should look like Texas. I would approach things really trying to be rooted in the place, really trying to be rooted in the ecologies and the landscapes that are already here. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jennifer Orr and Tiffany Rasco of Studio Belgones for a fireside chat about their growth rooted in community. Jennifer Orr is a co-founder and principal of Studio Belgones. Her commitment to protecting and supporting healthy ecological systems sits at the center of her work. As a self-proclaimed plant nerd, Jennifer oversees all office planting design and loves to insert whimsy and play into her projects. And Jennifer gives back as a current board member and past president of the Zilker Botanical Garden Conservancy. Tiffany Rasco, an office manager at Studio Balconist, making the most of her varied work experience, waiting tables, museum education, and salon ownership. She assists wherever needed. Growing up in Austin, and watching it evolve into a grown-up city, she finds it rewarding to work where nature, beauty, and sustainability are still cultivated and created for everyone to enjoy. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Jennifer and Tiffany. Thank you. And thank you, as always, to Nathan for joining us today. He is a product marketing manager here at Monograph. Yes. So let's get started. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the structure of Studio Bonus, the work you do, and what your office looks like? Sure. So we are a landscape architecture only firm and we are an office of 10. My business partner and I, her name is Ilsa. We started our firm, I don't know, it's probably been 10 or 12 years ago. And we are still the owners and uh, two principals. And we've got a senior associate, a couple project managers and landscape designers. And thank goodness we have Tiffany, our office manager, keeps us organized. Anything else you could think of on our office setup? You and Ilsa were born here. I'm from here. So all together between the three of us, we think we know everything about Austin. (laughs) And we usually do. (laughs) But our office is a blast. I can definitely speak to that since I'm not a designer. We have a great group of young people. Our office is casual. It's fun. I've been in many architect offices and there's just more banter, more teamwork. It's a good time. Look forward to coming here. Nice. Yeah. And I think we work really hard to uh, support work-life balance. I think most people, when they come out of design school, are pretty shell-shocked because there is no work-life balance whatsoever in design school. I My background was totally different before I went to landscape architecture school. So it was kind of a punch in the gut. I didn't realize that you weren't allowed to eat or sleep or drink <laughs> or breathe. I'm exaggerating. But uh, both Elsa and I have I've worked really hard to do good work and have good lives. I, I think it's uh, important to do both. And it's a women-owned business. Right. And they do give back to the community. As Sylvia mentioned, Jennifer's on the Botanical Garden Conservancy. Also works with art and public places and the Trail Foundation mm-hmm. with Art from the Streets. So we do take a lot of pride in being from here and trying to keep all the lovable things about Austin at the forefront. It's a good race. Yep. Yeah. So I guess based on that, we were talking earlier, Jennifer, you're, I think you said a fourth generation Texan. Is that right? Yeah, I guess. And then Tiffany is from Austin. And I would love to, for you guys to elaborate kind of how that differentiates your work, like really understanding the community in which you're delivering projects. How does that influence the way that you think about your projects, the way that you even design, I guess, that whole piece? Sure, sure. That's a good question. Huh. So. 
I grew up in Austin, but also my parents ran a bed and breakfast in the Hill Country for many years, almost 20 years. And I come from a family where we would, you know, our vacations were national parks, state parks. I just thought it was normal to know how to identify trees and grasses, plants, like that was just part of my life. So I think for me, it's just really knowing the Texas landscape and it's complicated. Austin sits on a end of the the beginning of the hill country. And then we also have some plains that are actually, you know, soil you would actually want to farm in. And um, and it's a tough climate. Uh, It can get really cold here. It can get really hot here. We can get tons of rain. We can get no rain. So I think it's, to me, it's understanding the Texas climate, the Texas landscape. Obviously, people are moving here in droves and Austin's becoming more sophisticated. And on some hands, on some ways, that's wonderful. Our, our food is so much better. Shopping is so much better. But I would hate for Austin to become a cookie cutter in the way it looks. Like, I think our landscape should look like Austin and should look like the Hill Country and should look like Texas. I would approach things really trying to be rooted in the place, really trying to be rooted in the ecologies and the landscapes that are already here. So I think that's probably the biggest piece for me. And also, I just grew up in a family that really loved the land and loved being outside. And so I think I just, it's getting gobbled up. There's no doubt about it. And I'd rather have a real dense urban downtown than more strip malls in the hill country, but uh, we're doing what we can to work with that. And I think Austin's known for, you know, it's live music. There's Mm -hmm. a strong counterculture, kind of like a hippie scene. University of Texas is here, the state capital. So it's a well-educated and kind of Mm -hmm. free-thinking city. We're not near as conservative as most of the other cities in Texas, Mm -hmm. which is great. Austin specifically, like West Austin is that hill country, rocky soil. Uh, It's completely different than East Austin, where the soil is really rich. I've ended up moving on the east side for a long time and immediately planted some trees that all died because I did not know what I was doing and they hated that kind of soil. So it's knowing what to put when and where. And I look at the people that we have moving here and trying to get them up to speed and appreciate this kind of more natural landscape as opposed to moving to the hill country and saying, I want a lawn of St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. want a playscape with a soccer bowl. You know, this is really more conducive to like forts and tree houses and mm-hmm. winding paths mm-hmm. and grasses. And these guys are really good at getting that across and finding the right ants that appreciate that aesthetic. Yes. Yeah. I think that's true. And um, Tiffany made a good point too. It's a creative town. Um, when I had friends from, grad school, they came to visit one weekend. And one of my friends was like, I've never seen so many cool fences in my entire life. And I was like, huh, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. Everybody thinks about their fence. Or she said, I've never seen so many cool like signs and menus, the graphic design. So it's fun. It's fun to be in a city where people care about, they care about design. It's true. And it can even be like design on a budget, like kind of very organic, bordering on rough, but still you can tell some thought was put into Mm -hmm. it. Not everything has to be polished and sophisticated. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be a good time and comfortable. Yep. Yep. You make it sound so attractive, um, Austin, to the city, but... I know, I'm like, stop it, don't move here. No, I'm just kidding. Well, it will be 100 degrees here. Yes. uh, There you go. It will stay that way for three. The birds are chirping. It's beautiful today. (laughs) Come in the middle of the the night. Yeah, see yeah, how you've heard. This is, or this August. is when South by Southwest happens. This is when everybody right. wants to be here. And I'm like, show up in a few more months and see what you think. So <laughs> it does change. I love the way that you were speaking about just like honoring where you are and respecting that it's not like, don't try to put something there that doesn't work like a lawn. Everyone has a very strong opinion on lawns, right? Like they're not, not exactly the best way to go about designing something. Right. But I'm curious to see, like, how does this being very intentional and thoughtful about what your actions are, how does that translate into how you work with architects and engineers and artists? And then maybe also like some of the ways that your office is structured as well to respect everyone where they're at. That's a good question. I'll let you answer the second part. Okay, good. The first part. Okay. So Austin, again, University of Texas is here and it has a landscape architecture school, but it has had a well-known architecture school for a lot, much longer than it's had a landscape architecture school. So there are a tremendous amount of architecture firms here. Like it's kind of unbelievable. And uh, there are big firms, there are small firms. Uh, 
runs the whole gamut. So I think given that, I still think that there's always an educational component. Architects come to a project with their set of ideas. Uh, Civil engineers come to a project with their set of ideas. I mentioned how it's sort of feast or famine here. You know, we'll have really bad droughts, but we'll also have unbelievable rainstorms. And so civil engineers are like, look, we got to prepare for when Noah comes. Like they're, you know, they're really preparing for the worst. So I think it's, there's still a big educational component, trying to step back a little bit and get people to think about the site first, to think about what's appropriate on the site. I mean, even to just think about sunshade issues, you know, like that can just go out the window sometimes when you get going. And and that's so important in Austin. I mean, it gets really hot here. And so you got to really think about how you're creating spaces that people will want to be in all the time. So I think landscape architects have to do this everywhere. I don't think it's just Austin centric. I think this is part of our charge. But given that we do have such a talented architecture community, I think that's a real gift. There's no doubt about it. But I do think sometimes they just forget certain things, you know, it's not their focus. So I think it's just trying to educate, to step back and to sort of look big picture before we dive into the project. Also, we're trying really, really hard to work with civil engineers on doing as much above ground drainage and stormwater management as we can. Obviously, things have to be piped. I understand that. I mean, this is a problem everywhere. Y'all are on the East Coast and the water, there's nowhere for it to go. I mean, y'all have combined sewer overflows. You got all sorts of issues. So we're trying to get people to think about their land as sort of sponges. Like you mentioned lawn. Lawn is a horrible sponge. It's a horrible sponge. It doesn't actually, I think the coefficient is like just a little bit better than concrete in terms of like it being able to absorb water. It just runs off. You know, it's made, especially if it's compacted and people are walking it on all the time. And so, yeah, there's a need for lawn if you're playing soccer or you're Sure, but like, does your whole yard need to be that? So trying to think about planting native ground covers, planting native plants, planting any chance we get prairie-like plantings. I mean, those things just sucker. That's a big part of how we approach with civil engineers as well, is trying to think about drainage a little more holistically, trying to keep some of it on the project, not just sticking it all underground. Yeah, I don't know a good segue for that, but... <laughs> That's um, okay. You can totally switch. <laughs> one of the cool things about our group is... The location. So we do have access to a lot of really well-informed, moneyed residential projects. We do. UT's here, ACC, there's institutional work for the schools. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of commercial, like moving in. There's very entrepreneurial city. So the residential, commercial, institutional projects that we have typically it's not uncommon for Jennifer to have more residential than anything. Ilsa to have more institutional and commercial kind of be scattered around. And they're very egalitarian and generous in creating the teams within our office. So you might, you'll have a principal in charge and then you'll have a project manager and a designer, but it's not like Jennifer has a team. She always works with an Ilsa. And then we have Michael who's also pretty much principal. It's not like they just have their teams and they, that just that pipeline, there's a whole lot of cross-pollination. And especially with the young designers that they, when they come on, they're aware that they need to experience each kind of project mm -hmm. to kind of see permitting through Austin's terrible and residential permits suck. And even working with the city, it's their own permits. That Everything's got it. Even yet the city will be hurdle. your client <laughs> and you can't get the permit through. And you're like, but you're the client. I don't understand. So yes, there's bureaucracy. So there's the hurdles that come with those, but then there's also a lot of great opportunity. Residential moves mm -hmm. really quickly. Your opinions are taken in and materialized rapidly. Mm -hmm. Of course, institutional's way more drawn out and convoluted. So I really enjoy that about the watching the team work together. Most firms decide they're residential only, they're commercial only, they're institutional only. I came from a firm that only did institutional. I think once or twice we did a residential for like a client's friend or something. But most of the time you sort of have a trajectory. And part of the reason we didn't have one was because we started our business in a recession. So we couldn't really be very picky. But it's turned out to be really a good thing. I think we've gotten to work on lots of different scales. And like Tiffany said, lots of different speeds. If all I ever did it in institutional work, that would be really tough because it takes forever to see your project built. Mm -hmm. So you get to have some of these different speeds of projects. But yeah, I think not only do we enjoy it that way, but I do think as a designer coming in, it just gets you exposed 
to all sorts. And I'm not sure why I still feel like in the architecture world, people are excited to do residential work. I still feel like for whatever reason in the landscape world, a lot of people kind of thumb their nose residential work. And I find it to be extremely interesting. I'm able to do things that I would never get to do in a commercial or a municipal job, uh, test materials, uh, do things much more sustainably without having to jump through hoops. Again, it's getting the right client, but I find it to be really uh, rewarding. I was going to say there's a lot to comment on there. I think in a world where I feel like architecture and landscape architecture is becoming more commodified, you guys are really rooted in place, mm-hmm. right? Where you can hire an architecture firm in New York to do design in Austin. Like you guys really understand the community in a way that you can kind of design sensibly for that community. I think that's really notable. And then like, of course, diversity of projects. We could go off on that for a while. Um, but to, to shift gears a, a little bit, I kind of wanted to talk about how the kind of different avenues your, your firm really is, you know, as the webinar title goes, rooted in community. Mm-hmm. And so you guys have some cool DEI designations, right? You're a woman-owned firm. Mm-hmm. You're a historically underutilized business. Is that the phrase? Mm-hmm. Is that correctly? Can you guys walk us through a little bit about that, how that came about, how that influences your philosophy and how you feel that helps you as a firm? Sure. It is also a bureaucratic endeavor. <laughs> yeah. We'll skip the- That's a common theme here. <laughs> so when Elsa and I first started, um, we were encouraged by many other people to get our women-owned business designation through the city of Austin. The city of Austin has a very specific requirement that all city projects have to have. I mean, it is by the percentage. I think it's 31% of all the fee has to go to a women-owned business I can't remember all the percentages. And then it's broken down further, African-American-owned, Hispanic-owned, Asian-owned. And it's supposed to reflect, it's interesting, the women is only 30%, even though I'm pretty sure that women make up 50% of the city. (laughs) The ethnic groups are more based on what the city, like they, they actually update it based on the city census. So they're trying to reflect more the city. And on one hand, it's a total hornet's nest. I mean, that filling that out and doing that work, oh my gosh, holy moly. But on the other hand, I think it's done a really good job of introducing people to the design field to do real work, to do city work, to do municipal work that would be really hard to get otherwise. I think there are still only maybe three certified African-American women architects in the entire city of Austin, which is heartbreaking. But I'm not sure if there would have been any had not some of these city initiatives. So any city project, it's required. If you don't meet the requirements, if your team makeup is not as it should be, they don't even look at your proposal. It's done. You're out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing when firms come down here and they're like, oh, let's go after a city of Austin project. I'm like, are you sure? Do you want to read the whole? Let me tell you. (laughs) And not only does your makeup have to be corresponds with those designations, but the firm has to be designated through the city of Austin. You don't have to live in the city of Austin to be designated, but what's the chance that if you're a firm in out of Nashville, that you're going to have a city of Austin certification, like you probably didn't bother. And it's not the whole team, but it's a good part of it. But it has introduced us to all sorts of projects that we wouldn't have gotten introduced to. It has helped us learn all sorts of things, has grown our business. It's uncommon for us to team with specific architects that we've worked with in the past or engineers. So it definitely kind of creates some camaraderie mm-hmm. in certain populations that you wouldn't have. Maybe. You wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't have had otherwise. So that's the city of Austin one. And then the hub designation is the state of Texas. And that's a little bit looser. Basically, as soon as you're certified as a city of Austin, get your state of Texas. Like the state of Texas just believes the city of Austin. Sure, if you did it through Houston or Dallas or San Antonio, I think at one point. There's reciprocity. Reciprocity, exactly, exactly. And that has helped us on a few like Texas Facilities Commission runs all the state of Texas projects. And we worked on the Texas School for the Deaf. And um, we're chosen as a landscape architect on a recent project there because of our hub, or not just because of our hub certification, but that got us in the running because of our hub certification. So the city one is a lot more particular and specific. The state of Texas one is a little bit more like, let's encourage teams to be more diverse. Let's encourage teams to, it's not quite as prescriptive. And I think philosophically, if Ilsa was here, she would definitely speak to the beauty of having a woman organization in a field that's dominated by men. She also has an architecture background. So I think it's even more right. so in that case. But um, yeah, for a long time, we were an office, mostly women. And now we're 
almost 50 50. Yeah, 50 50. It's, it's the most balanced it's been in a long time. Men would never interview. Are we scaring men off? I swear we will interview men. We're not, we don't have a problem with that. And I actually think it has benefited us to be a bit more diverse. I think, I mean, I loved for a while when it was six women, but yeah, that, that can also have its drawbacks too. So. That was before me for sure. Yeah, it was right before you. I need guys around to make me look softer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. You know, I know there's been a lot of debate, like, are those programs, do we need those programs still? And, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we wouldn't, but we're far from that world. I mean, I can't tell you how many projects I go to where I'm the only woman at the table over and over and over again. So I don't, the design field has somehow become a magically diverse space. We're not there yet. So we're trying. Yeah, for sure. But definitely a long way to go. Yeah. I'm curious, with all of those qualifications that you need to apply to projects, does that influence how you hire? If you need to have this type of team, does that reflect on your office? Or like, what kind of considerations go into hiring? The designation is based on the ownership. And we're 100% women-owned. So even if somehow every single employee was a man, we would still be women-owned. I think for us, what we've really been trying to think about is just diversity. I mean, I'll be totally blunt. Austin is a really white town. It's funny, like we're this really progressive, forward-thinking town, and we're just not really diverse. I mean, after living, I lived in D.C., I lived in Philadelphia. I mean, wow, you come home and you're like, oh. So I think, but we have tried to be more thoughtful and to seek out more diverse candidates when we are hiring, for sure because we just want the field to be more diverse. So that is something we have definitely, and it doesn't always work out perfectly, but you still have to be a good match, but we definitely are working to be consciously interviewing diverse candidates. And it's changing. People coming out of school, it is changing. It's not all, I can see it's changing. So that's good. Yeah, and that's the designers, the most recent wave of designers are young people. There was a couple of hires back where they were mature adults that had gone back to school or re-entered the workforce. So it can even, you know, the ages are diverse. It's, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I do think the landscape architecture community in general, all the way from ASLA, the, you know, the National Association of Landscape Architects to the local chapters, it is something that we're all really trying to be more mindful of and mentoring and just recognizing that the more diverse our field is, the better it is. Yeah, Actually, I would like to expand on this a little. Uh, we just finished up our section cut conference, but part of that was a career fair. And I thought it was really interesting to like get a look into different offices and ask like, what, what do you look for in an applicant? You know, how can they stand out? I know this is um, like just a pretty general question, but I think it helps get people an inside look on how these decisions are made and like just how the minds work of the person behind the table. Ooh, that's a tough one. So I would say for us, because we're a small firm, I still consider 10 people small. We're not as small as we used to be. And because we work on so many different scales and types of projects, I think the biggest thing I look for is somebody who's pretty self-directed. It doesn't mean that we're not going to mentor people. It doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, throw you off into the deep end. But I worked at a, a pretty big firm when I came out of school. I worked at Wallace Robertson Todd in Philadelphia, and they've been around for a long, long time. And it was a really good place to start because it has a huge marketing department. It has huge, you know, it has its own HR. It had a very established structure, you know, so... I was able to learn a lot of things. Luckily, it was a pretty relaxed place or pretty, I don't know, relaxed. It was a pretty open place and that you didn't have to work there, you know, five years before anybody trusted you. You know, they were willing to let you take on new things, but I didn't have to wear so many hats. I think when you come into a small firm, you're going to end up wearing a couple hats. Yeah. There has to be a little bit of adaptability or maybe curiosity. Don't get freaked out. We're not going to set you up for failure, but, you know, I, I don't know how others, but you might go on a site visit with a prospective client your first few months. And right. I don't know if that freaks out people fresh out of school or not. You know, I think a, it might've freaked me out, but yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's so, a good point. You know, you get to see a lot. You get to, you'll either realize that there's the field in our firm, especially offers you a lot of opportunity and different choices, or that, you, that is definitely not what you want to do. And I want to stay in the office more and draw quietly or be more focused, you know, and, and that's 
fine too. And I think we're working to make sure our roles and responsibilities are a little more defined. I do think that helps, but I think we're always going to expect flexibility and adaptability. So that's probably the number one thing I look at when I well, I mean, I'm kind of like, you need to know how the front of the house and the back of the house relate to each other so that you're imagining what a client exchange looks like. You need to be in a few meetings so you realize it's not yeah. as horrible as you thought, or it can be, you know, kind yeah. of demystify certain aspects of the business. But like, if you're a person who would never want to have the client contact and you'd always want to be behind this, it's probably not going to work here because eventually you're going to have to do something like that. So... Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. The one thing I was going to comment on was I like how you guys, this is just a small phrase in there, but it's cool. I think people often think of diversity as just like purely ethnic diversity, but you guys are, the fact that you have people that like went back to school after it's like a second career. I think people don't think about diversity that way. Yeah. And thinking about like, what are actually different perspectives that people are bringing to the business that's going to make our work better. I thought that was cool. And I think it's very different too, if you did your undergrad in landscape architecture versus your graduate, it's just a totally different approach. I love those folks that come straight out of undergrad because man, are they well-trained and they're ready to produce and they're ready to roll. But sometimes it's harder for them. If you ask them to step back and rethink something and redesign something, they get a little bit stuck. And then those coming out of grad school, they can design all day, but if they actually have to turn it into a construction document, they're like, oh, what? So it's, I think it's good to get those. I mean, obviously you learn all that stuff, but yeah. Yeah. In fact, I mean, it's one thing when I worked a former job at WRT, there were a ton of Penn design grads and there were a ton of Penn state grads. And I thought it was a perfect mix because one school really taught you how to build things. One school really taught you how to design things. You know, eventually you have to come together. Gotcha. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, trying to hit all these different pillars. You're self-proclaimed, Jennifer, you're a self-proclaimed plant nerd. Makes sense for an landscape architect. How does sustainability really make its way into the way that you work? And I think um, maybe for my sake, not too into the technical details of that, you know, I think there's a time for that, but maybe from a philosophical perspective, like how does it make its way in there? Okay. I think it's just working with natural systems. Not trying to make a landscape do something it doesn't want to do. (laughs) Like that's probably the most unsustainable thing you can do. You know, if it's something that has to be maintained with an inch of its life or something that has to be watered every single day or has to be, you know, it's funny. I don't know if in your part of the world, do azaleas go as far north as Boston and New York? They're a big spring blooming popular shrub in the southeast like houston loves azaleas and the very southern north carolina loves azaleas and and it's funny because when i moved to austin and again my parents are total plant nerds too like they're very my mother wanted an azalea bed just like you had in houston well houston is full of acidic soil it grows pine trees the soil is completely different austin sits on top of a giant limestone shelf It's as far from acidic soil as you can get. It's basic and azaleas hate it. So if you're going to grow azaleas, you have to mulch them with green leaves. Every time you turn around, you have to add peat moss. I mean, you have to completely baby them. And it's funny because my mom is, her yard is so different. I mean, her yard is basically just a, You've won her Austin, over. I, well, yeah, well, yeah, she 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 figured on, she, she figured that out pretty quick. She was like, "Oops, this was a mistake." But um, I think it's just approaching doing things that want to be there, not trying to just constantly fight. I think that would be the philosophical approach. Well, we went out to a site visit just the other day, and it was west of Austin, and it was up on this bluff, and and uh, they were building this house, and they want to do a lot of really cool things with it. They want raised garden beds, they want an orchard, and I like native stuff, but I don't know what it is. And Jennifer's like, oh, you've got whatever that tall, scrubby stuff was. And she's like, sumac. But when you take time to like look at it and she's like, these will be bright orange in the spring. And I was okay, now I know what that is. I remember, but it's kind of like, there is a lot of really pretty stuff, but you've got to take the time to kind of appreciate it and create an environment where it can take off. And right. I just don't think most people do that. Most people would just go in there, scrape all that off, and then start dropping in whatever they wanted. Whereas there were some really nice beginnings of screening and coverage and holding the soil already there. But if you, you don't have somebody like that explaining it to you, right. you don't appreciate it. Right. And sumac right now in the winter is ugly as hell, but just give it a minute, let it, and then 
there's even sumac on the East Coast. And anyways, yes. So I do think you're right. I hadn't thought about that, but is it, I am a plant nerd because I love plants, but the plants tell you about the soil, plants tell you about the climate, plant, they tell you a whole story. So if you can pay attention to them, they just tell you a lot about the site. Uh, Michael in our office is especially good at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did EPA work and water, river from restoration, creeks, rivers. Yeah. And that's when the plants tell you the whole story. You know, are there invasives? Are there non-invasives? What's, you know, it, it, you see cottonwoods in Texas, you know, there's water. You see bald cypress in Texas, you know, there's water because they don't grow anywhere else unless there's water. So yeah, I think Uh, that's part of it. I'm a big fan of those elephant ears by water. And I was explaining that those were invasive. They they are. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Kind of broke my heart, but I'm on board now. (laughs) Yeah. How do you handle it in projects where, like, let's say it's a residential project and maybe they're not so concerned about the landscape as much? Like, how do you share this and educate them on the importance of it, whether it comes to like budgets or like maybe they left the landscape to a part that's not getting great sunlight? Like, how do you work with all of these like uh, things that can come up on projects, maybe sometimes out of your control? Yeah. Well, I will say, I think we've gotten better at screening our clients and obviously you're handed things, of course, you're, you're handed changes and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like just because you're paying for an architect and, and you want to pay for a really good design of the house doesn't mean you're going to pay for a landscape architect. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that they're that interested. And so most of the time when people come to us, not all the time, but most of the time people come to us, they really do want their landscape to sing or they really do want it to mean something. To bring value. To bring value, to be protected, to be enhanced. You know, if it's a very manicured landscape, we don't do a lot of those, but, you know, occasionally we'll do our, we'll do some rose gardens and in the right place and it brings joy. I think I've tried to learn that if I'm meeting with a potential client and we're just not speaking the same language, I just try to say, you know what, I think you'll do better with these other firms. You know, I think you'll do, I mean, there's a ton of amazing design build firms in Austin. They're great. You know, we're not design build, we're design only. We're going to cost more. The design's going to cost more and we're probably going to make the bills cost more, but it doesn't mean that you couldn't do, if it's not where your priorities are, then let's not stress ourselves out. But it doesn't mean that there aren't challenging landscapes we're met with. There definitely is. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I have, I do have to explain to people numerous times, you have a shade garden. You're not going to get to grow the things you think you're going to get to grow. Or the opposite. You have a super sunny site. And what do we need to do to like, you're going to hate this in most of the summer. You know, we've got to get you some more shade. Like, how do we talk about that? But I have a client who I've really enjoyed working with who came from Chicago, and I really am having to try to explain the soil to her. It's just a totally different language for her. And she's interested in learning. She totally wants to learn. It's not like she doesn't want to learn. But I've had to say, that's going to be hard to grow here. If you really want to try to do a few, we can do it. But you're going to be annoyed. It's, you're going to be disappointed. And I think the benefit of working with residents is you can tell them that you're telling the owner, you're telling the person if they're not going to maintain it, they're at least going to directly tell the person they're going to direct the person that is maintaining it. But what we've had here uh, happen a few times is we've got a few fire stations that we've been working on. Uh, uh-huh. And so they're municipal projects and they are their fire stations. They want drought tolerant, you know, they're not looking to waste a bunch of water and one unit sounds like a perfect candidate, but we've had a really hard time getting them to understand the maintenance that comes once we're done. The areas that are getting neglected, um, sprinkler systems breaking, nobody's paid attention, this kind of handing it over. And once it's out of your control, how do you, what can you do to make sure it survives as strong as it can? Because that's kind of a new challenge. And it's so painful when you work so hard. I mean, these fire stations are beautiful. The architect's done a wonderful job. They're not, they're great municipal buildings. Uh, We worked really hard to give the firefighter places to do their drills and uh, bocce courts and places to relax and all that, but they have no budget for maintenance. And we didn't realize didn't realize when it was that bad like I you know it's one thing to be like we don't have a lot of budget or I was like there's no budget like did you honestly think that like nobody could ever put eyes on this ever and it was going to work out so we're trying to figure that out and but carts is more of a success story. yes yeah well, recently we did a bus depot a municipal bus basically all the buses that come from east of Austin 
meet in this little depot and then you jump and get on the Austin bus. And given that, you know, Austin's growing so fast, this is a way that a lot of people can get into Austin and not have to drive and live in Elgin or Maynard or these other places. Um, and it's a beautiful little building. The architect did a beautiful job, a circular building. There's not a lot of circle buildings in the world. And we built a courtyard and landscape around it. And we worked really hard to harness all the water on the site. And we were, we used only Blackland Prairie, native Blackland Prairie species. There's not a lot of Blackland Prairie in Austin. I think there's like this much, right? There's like a- And it's like certified? Like, yeah. So it's site certified. Sites is a it's not that new, but I think in the world of architects, it's still a little new. It's a landscape only sustainability certification out of the wildfire center. Not unlikely either or something. Yeah. In architecture. Yeah. yeah. And it's rigorous. And it includes a required eyes on the project for at least three years. So we had to go back and check it and they had to maintain it. And you know, we had this horrible freeze last February. We had another freeze this February. Last February, it was tougher. But because they were all native plants and because we were really thoughtful about the soil. Yeah, once, it, found, it bounced back. It bounced no back. Time. It bounced back. But thank goodness somebody did finally go and maintain it. And the pandemic, I'm sure that had something to do with it. You know, the whole world just sort of went away. But it's nice to do a project like that because when they decide to be site certified, they have to maintain things a certain way. So it, it gives somebody a structure. So we're trying to think about generally in the residential field, it's not a problem. Most people aren't going to pay for a beautiful residential landscape and then not take care of it. But we're trying to figure out how in uh, municipal and public and even commercial that mm -hmm. they can really be taken care of because it's a big waste of money to not take care of them. And it's not sustainable. Yeah. So just wanted to close out with one final question. We have a few minutes left. Before. Sure. Any Q&A? So you guys, you guys do great work. You work well with the community. You do sustainable work, you know, prioritize diversity, inclusion, all that stuff. And then I was peeping around a little bit and I saw on Glassdoor, you guys have good reviews there. Like, how are you able to deliver all of this? What is Glassdoor? Oh, it's like an employee review site. So you're well rated there if you didn't already know. Oh, nice. Uh, it's great to hear. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, like, how do you guys deliver all this work at the same time while staying organized, hitting deadlines, making sure, sure. that people have good work-life balance? Like, I, I mean, this is a practice ops webinar. So maybe you can talk sure. to us a little bit about kind of practice sure. ops and how you're really making sure you're delivering all that stuff. Well, it's definitely been a process because I will say that when Elsa and I first started like our timesheets were in Excel. Half the time they weren't there. I mean, oh my gosh. So we've grown. We've hired an office manager who knows what the hell she's doing and has run a business before. <laughs> uh, so we have systems. And we've just gotten more sophisticated in the programs we're using to stay. I mean, definitely we joined Monograph because we were told this is a much better system than what we were using before. And it is. <laughs> we didn't know about y'all. So we were glad to hear about y'all and, and learn. We're also just trying to internally to have better systems in terms of, uh, you know, we have a weekly meeting every Monday to make sure everybody's in line. We try to put deadlines on the calendar to make sure that they don't all completely conflict with each other. And also we've gotten a little bit bigger. So I think we have enough hands to do the work. You know, I think that's a hard thing to figure out. You know, you can have too many hands and you can have not enough hands. Like getting the right amount is not always easy, but it feels like we're at a place where it's a good balance. I think even within the leadership, Jennifer, Ilsa, Michael, if I'm included in that, there's a layer of us and there's a layer of younger designer people. There's enough people to spread the burden around that if you get tired or you're out of town or you've got a deadline and you have to focus on something really now, there's enough people to pick up the slack. So it's not just overwhelming yeah. one person. Yeah. We are fortunate enough that we've got a strong enough team now that everybody can kind of, Jennifer's really good about so what you're saying is you're feeling swamped. Give me something. I'll take that and sharing that. It's a pretty successful team effort. And I, and I have to say, like, that wasn't true. I mean, we're a 12-year-old business. And the first five years were really hard. I mean, anybody starting their own business, we started in a recession, which in some ways was good because you could get people's attention, but in other ways was bad because it was a recession. Luckily, Austin didn't hit it as hard as some, experience it as hard as some cities did, but it's been a process. I mean, we've had to learn a ton of things. Just because you go to design school doesn't mean you know how to run a business. And I think Ilsa and I have had to, we've had some coaching, we've had some help, 
we've hired the people that are better at things that we're not good at. I mean, and, and hopefully in five years from now, we'll be even better, you know? So I think I appreciate what you're saying, Nathan, but I don't want to in any way act like this has always been easy. It hasn't been, it hasn't been, you know, I mean, there were times when, uh, you know, we lost employees because we were not mentoring them well enough. We were giving them too much responsibility and we learned from that. So I think it's just being willing to learn, being willing to recognize your shortcomings and definitely having a real staff. I mean, that takes time. But I do now, we recognize too how important it is to have those systems in place. And, and Tiffany's been a huge help with that. Like, I think she was like, so what are your systems? And I'm like, systems, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm a great bad cop. Yeah, yeah. We have more systems um, now and that's good because when you get really busy, if you don't have something that's just an automatic, it's not going to happen. I'm going to ask a question about these systems, but uh, I want to make sure we answer this one in the Q&A first. Sure. From our okay. anonymous attendee, what was your experience or advice for younger professionals on dealing with the freak out mode to adapt after getting out of school? Oh, man. That's hard. We have a babysitter who I just adore and she's 22 and she hates her job. And my heart just goes out to her because I'm like, oh, honey, 22. That is that's a tough time. I guess it would be, I think that I would think of your first five years out of school as just try to learn as much as you can. And if what you learn is what you don't want to do, that's just as valuable as learning is what you do want to do. I thought I wanted to go to law school. I was a paralegal out of undergrad. And then I realized, no, I don't. I would hate law school. And I switched. But thank goodness I learned that before I started law school. So I guess it would be patient with yourself to not be hard on yourself to get your community around you. Because when you leave college, you lose that community. You know, college is a built-in community and then it's gone. It's hard. So I think it would just to be, try to be flexible and easy on yourself. And this expectation that you're going to come out of college and be like, okay, I got it all, you know, here I go. Like, I don't know if y'all ever watched that dumb show, Emily in Paris. That's ridiculous. That girl's like, how? you're right. Like she got sent to Paris and got to like be the, mm, that's bull. <laughs> I guess it depends on your ability to handle personal stress. So there's a lot of avenues landscape architect can take. That's true. And it would be hard to balance that. I need a job. I need to make a present, make my presence known. I need to get this experience coupled with being in a bad situation or a situation that's actually very narrow. And it's something you're not really into. I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't want to say, you know, quit your job and go get another one. But right now, landscape architects are in demand and it is a, what would that be? A shopper's market. Yeah. So you can move around. I don't think you should torture yourself trying to fit into somewhere. Maybe a big firm isn't for you. Maybe a boutique is, maybe it's the opposite. But at the same time, you've got to be a grown up and do it right. You yes. got to still come. You yes. got to still deliver. You still need that reference. You still need to give them their two weeks. You still need to be respectful, but you're not a hostage. I couldn't imagine going through that much schooling and then getting your first job and it being so disappointing or difficult that you gave up on everything you've invested so far. Don't, don't rush to judgment. Everybody freaks out at some point sure. about being out in the world. So just whittle it back and have the confidence to try something different yeah, or uh, try some, a new situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're landscape architects. Now. I mean, there's a conservancy everywhere you turn. These public private partnerships are really the only way that public space is, is maintained in a thoughtful way. Go join one of them for a little while or go join a parks department. Like there's just so many things you can do to learn about your field. And I think just be patient with yourself. Cause Every, it take, life takes a lot. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes, it does. <laughs> From us old ladies. <laughs> that was your age. I know. Well, at least hardly older than 45. We're not, you know, we've got some wisdom, wisdom to share. <laughs> yeah. One thing I learned being an architect was that like you kind of have to be the expert at like an advisor clients, but at the same time, you're always having to learn something new. Um, yes. like whatever yes. type of project you're on, you have to like do your research, make sure you're the expert. And then when I asked my doctor friend, like, 
does he just like Google things? Like sometimes <laughs> he says he has like his um like whatever like company database or so it's a little more legit. But like so I was just like, is everybody just like you know trying to learn on the go? Probably so, because how could you know everything? You and can't. I, I think it's somebody like I love learning new stuff, and I would never ask someone a question that if I was going to get a better answer waiting or giving them the time to find me the right answer, then do that. I don't want you to feel like you just got to answer something to look smart. No, tell me, well, I've got a book about that. Let me look it up. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got a friend that's an expert. So there's an impatience to deliver and to kind of immediate gratification. And sometimes you just have to be comfortable with the awkward wait until everybody gets what they want. But I think if people know that you're on their team and you're looking to get them the best result, they'll wait as long as it takes if that's what they get. That's true. That's a lesson that I've definitely had to learn. I feel like I, if someone asked me a question, I'm like, well, I better know that. It's like, well, if I don't know it. I'm sure I can find out or try to find out. And that's okay to say, like, actually, it makes you feel much calmer too. You're not always like, must know, must know. <laughs> I've, I've browbeat my husband. The answer is, I don't know. Let me get back to you. Yep. Yep. That's a and that's a reasonable to, what answer. What are you doing this weekend? <laughs> I don't know. Let me get back to you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but it's a pro. It's a process, Nathan. We don't. It, we didn't just start our firm and wahoo! It all went well. It's a process. We're like running out of time, but I'm real. I just I really want to ask um, Tiffany when you joined Studio Balcones, how did you set up the um, the studio? <laughs> Wait, skin. Or how did you go about like entering a, a company that was already like, you know, established and then organizing it to, in a way that worked for you? Can you elaborate on that? Or how, how did it happen? Um, well, I mean, when I came on, they, they had their, their weekly meetings, which immediately I realized I don't know what the phases of design are. I don't know what all these little acronyms mean. So I got to watch that. And I think it's also just my need for... I like information, but I need to know where to put it in my mind and literally like on my desktop so that it doesn't get lost or forgotten. So having had a business before, I knew what my to-do list typically used to look like. What what does that look like now in this office setting? And Jennifer and Ilsa, they've got big jobs to be doing separate from me. So I didn't have a lot of input. They were very trusting and generous to say, yeah, it's that's what's going on. Uh, we had another coworker whose wife had these morning huddles and that's what they called them at her work. And it's just a 15 minute huddle with everybody in the office early in the morning to just kind of finger on the pulse what's going on. And there are times when if we didn't have as many people, they might've gotten missed a couple days a week, but I was always a huge fan of it. And they are too, but it really helps set the tone, set the pace. You can tell, oh, you're about to have a bad day. Let's get some people, this person, some help. This person's light. Oh, I have this thing on my list. I've been wanting to get off for weeks. Would you help me with it? So there was just some little regularly placed coming together. You know, this is my list who can help that they were free to implement. Mm -hmm. And they've worked really well. They've changed forms. They've changed times. They've changed lengths of times. We have Friday, we have a garden out front. This whole office has raised garden beds and we have four. So on Friday mornings, we have breakfast tacos and and garden. That doesn't happen all the time, but it happens two times a month. Yeah, once or twice a month. Yeah. Just depending on how much there is to do in the garden or if it's raining or, you know. So I'm pretty like, I like to know that my Monday is going to look like this and this is going to look like this. And I think just me being uptight has kind of helped everybody else's feet to the fire. We needed it. I came from a more organized firm. Ilsa came from a small boutique, rather, I don't want to say disorganized, but just, you know, a little, they weren't super organized. And I think we needed a third party. You know what I mean? We needed somebody from the outside looking in saying, this is going well, this is not going well, this could go better this way. And yeah, granted, Tiffany doesn't come from a design background. Well, that's not true. You come from a hair design, but you've run businesses before. You've dealt with both. Yeah. So I think that alone... And you're an adult. All the other office managers we were hiring were like, they were too young. So we just needed someone with more life experience. And um, we just, I mean, seriously, we were like, yeah, we'll hire you. And uh, it's horrible. And we also hired her full time. You know, we had some, we had part-time office managers and you can't really, 
you can't really commit. So it just, it was a much better hire and we're more organized. And, and I think we'll be even more organized in a couple more years, yeah. but still fun. You know, <laughs> we can crack jokes. In the My huddle. job is safe until we get an HR department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we don't need one of those. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Like, I, I'm sure that there were, there are a lot of firms out there would love to have someone that has experience running a business come in and kind of yes. smooth things out. We've heard some other experiences so like that that have, that have really helped. So we have two minutes left. We're going to end with our fun question, or I guess meaningful, deep. I don't exactly know how to phrase it, but what is... Life question. We, we, yeah, life question. We like to end with these. So what is the kindest thing that someone has ever done for you? And that's how we'll close out. You have to go first. So I don't know if this is the kindest. We, we we discussed this a little bit and I have a hard time coming up with the kindness, but I was trying to think of recent kindness in my life. So I have an autoimmune disease and I have to be really particular about what I eat. So I can't eat any grains whatsoever. No rice, no flour, no corn, none of it. And I can't eat processed sugar, which probably makes you think I don't eat anything. So my mom has become this wonderful baker and she makes almond flour biscuits and blueberry muffins and scones and drops them off on a regular basis. So I feel like that's a kindness in my life that I am very thankful for. Uh, so my husband and I live with my mom and my mom's the nicest person in the world. And my husband's super nice too. And their kindness is just putting up with my absolute sarcasm. <laughs> they love football and I don't. So I just bitch about it the whole time they're watching it. So that is, but I'm going to go back to my original answer, which is, because of Jennifer's jacked up diet <laughs> and Ilsa being a diabetic, one holiday season, this really happy client bought us a giant box of tiny pies and nobody else ate any of them. So I got to eat like nine tiny pies. <laughs> and they're like cherry and peach and chocolate and ton. It was a kindness from a stranger that he had no idea. Major holiday. It did. That's awesome. Those are both excellent. I love all of them. <laughs> Thank you both so much for spending this time with us and sharing all of your insights and wisdom. Uh, we had a great time. Well, you guys made it very easy. You guys are very personal and easy to talk to. Yeah, so. no, that was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks, Nathan, for joining me today. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.